This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Way, Brady PG 13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramount Plus. issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 81 of the Standard Issue pod scene. I'm Mickey Noonan and when I was little the theme tune from Black Beauty used to make me cry. What's that Lynn? I was going to say <laughs> I was literally going to say that. I don't think of a horse when I hear the Black Beauty music. Should we tidy up I to the theme of, from Black Beauty? I think of Alan Partridge. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and my neighbours had a children's party that lasted 11 hours. Oh the humanity. Don't they get a bed at some point? But when the adults really kick in. Not when the adults Mm. then start. I tell you what, if I hear, happy birthday to... One more time, I was ready to just go out there and... Punch Stevie Wonder. (laughs) Probably do nothing, because that's (laughs) what I'm like. I'm Jen Offord, and last week I was in the same room as Sunita. So matcha. I only think of her now in the context of the X Factor when, like, she comes out at judges' houses with just some palm yeah. leaves over her. You and know. you know that Simon Cowell has touched her, and it makes me. And Brad Pitt. Simon Cowell has touched Brad Pitt. <laughs> That's Crazy. not what I'm saying for legal reasons. That is categorically <laughs> not what I'm saying. I'd love it if that was what Brad Pitt decided to sue over. <laughs> I don't think it was Brad Pitt. Brad, thanks really again good. for listening, yeah. by the way. Um, <laughs> Later on, we chat to author and old lady whisperer Kate Thompson about her new book and the joys of social history. I talked to Rachel Deloche-Williams about her new book, My Friend Anna, and being taken in by a con woman. In Jenny Off the Blocks, we're having a bit of a catch-up with the latest goings-on in women's sport. And we wonder, will Sean Bean make it to the end as Dunleavy does Dystopia does Equilibrium? I mean, you wouldn't get odds on that. I'm amazed he makes it to the end of that Yorkshire Tea advert, to be honest. More on that they later. They really missed a trick there. I think if he had just gone out of that office and then just died, it would have been perfect, Sean Bean. But first, by-elections, the power of Metallica and too many cats, as if that's a thing. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Stink. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Imagine a boot. Stamping on a human face forever with some jokes. And on that note, the double think, double speak and memory holes were out in force last week. Let's start with uh, Ian Duncan Smith, who it's been a while since we've done the Bush Telegraph, but he's apparently still a thing, sadly. In a Telegraph article, he tried to sell Brexit as an opportunity, much like the Reformation was an opportunity for us to make a modern Britain. There are a thousand ways to cut that particular cheesecake of bullshit, but I'm just going to say it didn't work out well for my people. And that if I were alive then, I'd probably not be. (laughs) So I think you're going to need a better sell than that, Duncan Smith. 
Meanwhile, the Daily Mirror's Pippa Serra last week reported that a number 10 insider had said the government was relaxed about the pound falling as it meant the business was taking the risk of no-deal Brexit seriously. Cool. An argument so brilliantly cynical and circular, it could also be applied to anything. People are looting the shops. Good. It means they're taking the possibility of a no-deal Brexit seriously. I've started using dirt mixed with water as coffee, which is good, really, because it means I'm taking the risk of a no-deal Brexit seriously. And I read that farmers are selling their cows for magic beans. Yes. But that's good, because it means etc. But none of that nonsense can hold a candle to racist-in-chief Donald Trump, who made a set of extraordinary claims, including one that he had worked with first responders on September the 11th. (laughs) Another, that he was going to cure AIDS and childhood cancer. Fuck off old people. Just the kids. He also revealed he didn't know the difference between Russia and the Soviet Union. All while angry young men, one of whom spelled out the word Trump in guns and put it on Facebook before going out to kill Latinos, slaughter more people just going about their business. Imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. It's all right, though, because um, there's no room for hate in America, is there? I know. And it's all to do with computer games, which is why we have so many mass shootings over here. Oh, Oh, no. Yeah. Bad news for the Tories last week, as the people of Brecon and Radnorship made like Stormzy to issue a rallying cry of fuck Boris in a by-election. Liberal Democrat MP Jane Dodds beat Tory MP Chris Davis, who had previously held a majority of just over 8,000, by 1,425 votes. Plaid Cymru didn't stand someone, did they, to let the Lib Dems have it? But Even so, I mean, the result, great. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a bit of gaming, which the Tories didn't like, but fuck them. So uh, amongst the excitement of what a damning indictment this is of Boris Johnson's short premiership and the clear indication of a people's vote revolution, it's probably worth pointing out that, obviously, that, there was a little bit of gaming going on. But uh, also that the by-election was triggered by Davies pleading guilty to filing false expense claims, which is unlikely to be a hit with voters, to be fair. Perhaps also worth mentioning that voter turnout was down by 15% since the last general election. But hey-ho, the Lib Dems now have a whopping 13, count them, MPs, and Boris Johnson's parliamentary majority is down to one. But again, let's not forget that majority is propped up by an unholy alliance with the DUP. So what does that dwindling majority mean? Well, probably that the DUP will become even more important to Boris's government than ever before. Great times, guys. Oh yes, Britain continues its downhill hurdle like a child on a tray on a too steep hill as their dad stands at the bottom hoping they will smash into a tree so he can make £250 by videoing it. Dad, in this scenario, and to be clear, in absolutely no other scenario at all, (laughs) is the new Prime Minister Boris Johnson. First time I've said that aloud, and I fucking hate it. Johnson continues to play it, and I do very much mean play it, as a mixture between Pol Pot and a pensioner who just wandered into your garden in his pyjamas, asking if this is where you catch the number 11. One example being a piece about the NHS in The Times, where he attempts to seem relatable by telling a story about treading on a piece of glass and going to A&E a few days later to get it removed. Where foot doctors, of all varieties apparently, made him (laughs) nimble as a lamb. Certainly looks nimble, doesn't he, yeah. No news on what happened to the broken glass, originally part of a shattered cafetiere, irony klaxon, although rumours abound it will soon be replacing Liz Truss, at least in interviews. Given, if it made its way into his foot, it's actually half sharp and has some fucking point to it. Many believe this is all part of a plan to appeal to women. 
Because who doesn't love a man who can't clean up properly after he breaks something, can't remember to put shoes on afterwards, and then moans for days before he gets it seen to? Sexy. Absolutely. And after struggling through the next few days like a fucking hero, yeah. Hannah, where would he go when the pain got too much? To A&E, of course, where actual day-to-day heroes sorted him right out. Because it's their job. Their vastly underfunded job. And do you know what else? Breast cancer survival rates have gone up. And this is related because, uh, oh, hang on, well, because in that column for the Times, it read like Johnson had been mainlining neat Ribena ground into a fine white powder. And he jumped from his minor garden accident to how easily we forget the brilliance of the NHS. I think by we, he must surely have meant his party, given the Conservatives have decimated a vital service that other countries have looked upon with envy and which is now on its knees. The column formed part of Johnson's announcement he'd be injecting £1.8 billion into the NHS, which sounds a lot, right? Thing is, it's easy to look like you're splashing the cash on the NHS when in real terms you're doing close to sweet Fanny Adams. Governments almost always increase spending on the NHS year on year. And because the value of money almost always falls due to inflation, next year's total will almost certainly be bigger than the year before in cash terms. So it ends up pretty easy to have broken the previous record every year. Add to that, senior policy analyst at the Nuffield Trust, Sally Gainsbury's excellent tweet thread, pointing out it would take £5.7 billion to upgrade 20 hospitals in London alone, and that £1.8 billion is looking pretty shanky. Further add to that, Johnson's admission about where all this cash is coming from, and his promise looks as inconsequential yet potentially damaging as a shard of glass from a smashed cafetiere. So if you're in any doubt about the priorities of the US legal system, spare a thought for 79-year-old Nancy Segula, the Ohio woman was facing 10 days in jail last week for feeding stray cats. But don't get excited, guys. It wasn't just a one-off. Repeat offender Segula had been found to have been feeding her feline friends not once, not twice, not even three times, but a massive four times in breach of laws prohibiting the feeding of stray animals. I have to feed my cat like four times a day, so that seems fair enough. I know, over over like a four-year period as well. Still going to be hungry cats out there. And Segula's crimes don't stop there. The issue dates back to 2015, according to a statement issued by the local police department on Facebook, which read, In June of 2015, she was cited for feeding cats and convicted of that charge in July of 2015. In May of 2017, she was cited for various charges relating to feeding feeding cats at her residence. (laughs) Fuck knows what that means. In July 2017, she was convicted of having... Too many cats. I've, I've got to say that. I've got to make a gratuitous crime reference here. Too many cats, too, too many cats at her residence. Too many man, BBK. I'll talk to you about it later. And she was placed on probation. The police stressed that the 10-day jail sentence came as a result of a violation of her probation conditions and had been suspended, although the judge was forced to impose the sentence last week after she freely admitted that she was still feeding stray cats. I love that, like she couldn't help just shouting out, I'm still giving them food! (laughs) I'm feeding the cats! Segula, who police said had had 22 cats removed from her property over the years. That is a lot of cats, to be fair. Told local reporters that she was a cat lover. Fuck off, really. (laughs) And explained, I miss my own kitties. They passed away. My husband passed away. I'm lonely, so the cats and kitties outside help me. Aww. Sorry, guys. Yeah. Let's head over to Twitter. That'll cheer us up, right? Yeah. Uh, Where I have stopped following Donald J. Trump. And I'm not alone in this. Not even in this room. 
The reasons are many and varied, but key for me is that by disseminating the dangerous nonsense from the world's most prominent village idiot, we become a part of the problem. Yeah, yeah, it can be fun to post a witty comment of disbelief when he claims he invented grass or was the first person to use the phrase, I don't think so, (laughs) or whatever the fuck he's bleating in that particular second. But does it help? Well, yeah, it helps him. But then, given the media aren't going to stop reporting the shit coming out of his fat thumb, does me not following him make any difference? I don't know. Hannah? Jen? Well, I stopped following him about a week ago because I saw Clara Jeffrey, who is the editor-in-chief of Mother Jones, say that popularity is important to Trump and mm-hmm. if lots of people unfollow him, at the very least, he's going to notice that his followers have gone down and he won't like it. Yeah. And so I did. And you also mentioned to me about the bots and you said... Yeah, because yeah, cause I was like, find out how many of them are actually bots. Because, I mean, obviously he has something like 60-odd million followers. 62.4. Yeah. And what did I say? 86% of not bots. So 14% of them are bots. And, and I said you, to Mickey, that's not very much, is it? But And I said, that is still 8.7 million pretend followers. It's quite a lot, to mm. be fair. Yeah. Has he claimed responsibility for getting ASAP Rocky out of jail? Or? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he did, to be fair. But. I'm just, uh, I'd like to say that I'm going to use one of Donald J. Trump's patented phrases. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so last night, Metallica saved my life. Yeah? Not so catchy, is it? No. And no. uh, not in fact me. But for a woman in Canada, it's actually true. Dee Gallant was walking her dog on Vancouver Island last week when a cougar approached her. Thinking, oh shit, that could eat me. Probably, but not definitively in those exact words. Dee started to blast Don't Tread On Me at the Wildcat, which can run at speeds of up to 50 miles an hour, if you're wondering why she didn't run away. According to CNN, the combination of heavy drugs and... Sorry, (laughs) that was a Freudian slip, we'll leave that in. The combination of heavy drums and James Hetfield's vocals were apparently too much to handle which is as much proof that animals have a soul as anything I've heard to date. According to The Telegraph, because, oh yes, everybody loved a bit of this story last week, Don't Tread On Me was once named as one of the 50 greatest conservative rock songs, a category I was unaware existed, let alone had more than 50 songs in it. So, lessons learned. If you encounter scary wildlife, you can drive them away with Metallica. Or failing that, get some kind of monster up on YouTube and then slowly back away when they get that what the fuck is wrong with these people? <laughs> Look in their eye. Have you seen some kind of monster? No. It is hilarious. It's like Spinal Tap, but, but real. Yeah, it's the uh, Metallica documentary. Jen just did a little... What? I know Metallica you rockumentary? Probably. I've actually seen Metallica. I've seen them twice. They set the stage on fire. I really love Enter Sandman, and I'm not going to apologise for that. Yeah, no, I have fond memories of it as, as a youth. It was definitely an experience. Mm. Nothing else matters. Oh, it's still got like that, though. Love it. Are you a conservative rocker now, Mick? (laughs) Well, it felt like there would only ever be this time to tell you. (laughs) What the the fuck does that mean? Also, how bad is it that when I first heard that story, I thought that she meant like a a slightly older woman who liked younger men? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they don't like uh, James Hetfield's vocals They do not. Roll over, Samantha, the heavily soiled sex robot. There's a new AI in town, and it's already involved in a legal wrangle. DABUS, which stands for Device for the Autonomous Bootstrapping of Unified Sentience. What? Catchy. I love that they've managed to get bootstrapping in there. Is something of an inventor and has already come up with two soon-to-be-patented ideas all on its own. 
Dubus, itself the brainchild of Dr. Stephen Thaler, has designed interlocking food containers that are easy for robots to grasp and a warning light that flashes in a rhythm that is hard to ignore. And now arguments are raging as academics insist Dubus is credited on the patents filed on its behalf, whereas patents offices insist innovations are attributed to humans. Given the current ongoing binfire of humanity, robot overlords could well be the only solution. Welcome, Dabus. You both amaze and terrify me. May it be as long as possible before someone tries to put his dick in you. <laughs> I did a there. Uh, anyone fancy some good news? Yes, please. Well, it's good news for us, good news for fish, but most of all, it's great news for David Attenborough, as it was announced last week that sales of single-use plastic bags in the UK's top supermarkets had halved in the last year. According to data released by the government, since the introduction of the 5p charge for carrier bags from retailers back in 2015, the number of bags being used is down by 90%. That's incredible. And in double good news, sales of plastic bags have raised £169 million since then, which is expected to be donated to charitable causes. Hooray! And that is good news, especially for the 100,000 animals in the sea, which are killed by plastic every year. Save the sea turtles. In it. More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we ask what can we as women do to make sure men face less hardships and indeed sexual assault charges? <laughs> I think of that morning, noon, and night, if and, I'm honest. And rightly so. <laughs> Jen? Constantly. Sounds like, sounds like you need to put a thinking cap on. It's, it's always on my mind. <laughs> Over in Malaysia, a law has been proposed that would protect men from being, and quite fucking clearly the next bit is a quote, seduced into raping women. I mean, right, sure. Mohammed Imran Abd Hamid, an MP with the ruling People's Justice Party, told his fellow politicians that men commit sex crimes because they are seduced by women's actions and clothing. And unbelievably, he kept talking, saying, from the actions, words and clothing of women, which can cause men to be seduced to the point they can commit acts such as incest, rape, molestation, watching pornography and likewise. His proposal, which came on the back of a plan to table a sexual harassment bill this year, following a consultation with survivors of sexual harassment and non-governmental organisations, gained the backing of bigwigs in United Malay's national organisation, which is the country's biggest and main national opposition party. So everyone's having a lovely time. In a tale as old as time, they're talking as if rape is about desire and lust rather than power and objectification. One in three women worldwide will experience physical or sexual violence at some point in her lifetime, mostly by an intimate partner. But what was she wearing, right? If you find yourself at the Edinburgh Festival this year looking for something to do, well then look no further. Because we, Standard Issue are putting on four events at The Stand, the best comedy club in the country, if you ask us. On August the 11th and the 12th, we have two In Conversation events where our guests include the brilliant Rosie Jones, Janet Ellis, just the Janet Ellis, Laura Lex, Gemma Kearney. I know. And we do have some more people, but we just can't announce them yet. So probably the best thing to do is to get onto our website, www, let's do it the old way, www.standardissuepodcast.com. 
and you will see all our live events there. You will also see the other two events that we are putting on at the Fringe, which is two stand-up nights with all female bills. They are completely brilliant. Callie Beaton and Jess Foster Q are both on at those shows, and there are, in fact, loads and loads of brilliant women on at those. You will find details of those shows at that website as well. Book yourself a ticket. Come along. It will be great. And since Hannah recorded that advert, we've also announced that on August the 11th for our In Conversation event, we have booked the incredible Phoebe Robinson. That's right, brilliantly funny American and one half of excellent podcast, Two Dope Queens. Come on now, that's got to get you getting the ticket. Hello, we are joined in the studio by author Kate Thompson. Hello. Hello, hello. we called you the old lady whisperer earlier <laughs> because that is what you are. God, what a thing to be known as. She doesn't get them to calm down though, she gets them to rear up. Yeah. No, I yeah, don't that's... want them sedated, I want them, you know, <laughs> I want them with their full memory banks flowing. You were on the podcast before when we were talking about your non-fiction books. Yes. Stepney Doorstep Society, but you've come in to talk about your yeah, novel, yeah. Secrets of oh, the Homefront Girls. But before we start, hmm. I, I just wanted to talk about the joy of talking to old ladies. I mean, <laughs> yeah, why we, not? we've all seen this week the BBC Archive tweeted a Vox Pop from 1977 in which an old lady was asked what she thought of TV and she talked non-stop for five minutes <laughs> and it is absolutely <laughs> freaking joyful. Oh, it's, it is a thing of joy. Is that She's, your life now? Pretty much, yeah, pretty much. And I read a line in a book recently that absolutely sums it up by Sebastian Fawkes. It was there was just one line that I thought, this is it. And he said, it's the unfiltered gush of history. And I thought, absolutely, that is what you're hearing when you speak to women like this. Because quite often, you'll get reams and reams, like, you know, what they had for dinner last week, their son's house in Canvey Island, their rheumatism. But in and amongst all that, you'll get nuggets of pure gold that you know it's just like amazing social history so yeah I do I I, I basically spend my whole my life really now just listening to old women and, and men and their stories and I love it I just love it I love it I don't know sometimes I can sit in a room with my friends and I, the conversation doesn't ever dry up but you know with with when I'm with hang, my hang on Jen <laughs> she's referring <laughs> to you no, no, it doesn't dry up but you know inevitably we, we might end up on something like Brexit yeah. you know but when you actually talk to old people just periodically I'll think I've got nothing to say so I'll say tell me what you remember about the moon landing yeah. and they just go and yeah. it's brilliant I mean you were there when we, we interviewed lovely Mari or Girl yeah, Walker that was as she's known <laughs> she's, she is just non so and wherever she goes she don't care where you're from She'll talk, when I took her in to be interviewed by Steve Wright and she was chatting up the security guard on the door she's <laughs> chatting up the cli- she doesn't care she just loves a chat and you know she'll talk to anybody it doesn't matter what class what background and I really admire that because she's got no filter she's got no prejudice she's just from the east end of old and they there's a real like how can I put some this up in the east end there was a real culture of curiosity people were treated the same as you walked into a pub didn't know if you were a pauper or a millionaire if you bought around, you were accepted. And people are interested in your life story and, and interested in other people. So that's what she does, Mari. She goes around London. I mean, she's a bit cheeky. She sees someone with a clipboard down South Bank. She'll jump on the back of the queue. And I say, why do you do that? And she goes, oh, I've done the London Eye. I've done theatre trips for free. I get myself in everywhere. <laughs> and um, I really admire that about women. So whenever I find somebody who I know has got a really sort of authentic voice like that, I will just, yeah heat-seeking missile I'll get in there and interview I guess also it's like it's kind of a sense of community in London that didn't like that doesn't really exist in a lot of those places mm. like the East End now has been taken over by wankers like me 
<laughs> don't like to smile at anyone. <laughs> but like back in the day, that would have been, yeah, there would have been would a have real been sense place. of community. It would have yeah. been quite normal mm. to just chat to people. I mean, it's a cliche that, you know, we didn't lock our doors, but they didn't lock their doors. Life was played out on the doorstep. You know, it wasn't played up in the house because quite often the house was tiny and full of damp and dark. So you take your veg out onto the doorstep to peel with your, you know, into your apron with your little pint of porter and you chat to your neighbour and you keep an eye on the kids. And I know that's a bit of a call the midwife cliche, but it's true. And I would love to have done that. I'd love to peel my veg on the doorstep with a pint. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My great auntie and I would sit on her doorstep and we'd shell peas. That was would what you? we do. Yeah, it was. And yeah. it must have been a throwback to that. Definitely. She was Without from Kent. Doubt. And so, yeah. It was but that like, was a working, you know, yeah. working class tradition of doing that. Or some, to, there's to the pub to peel. Yeah. <laughs> so when did we start getting this false idea that old people are irrelevant and not worth talking to? I can't answer that. I don't know when we started to get that feeling, but, but we definitely have. Mm. Like, one woman I've just been with now, Eileen, who's 92, she's from Bethnal Green, and she said to me, you know, I might have snow on the roof, but I'm not old, I've got stories to tell. And then another time I interviewed her at Morrison's Cafe in Stratford, Amazing. And this guy walked past and he smacked his bag into the back of her chair. He didn't say a word, he just walked on. And she looked at me and she said, That's, that happens on a daily basis. She said, when you're 80, you're invisible. When you're 90, you might as well be dead. You know? And I thought, God, how sad that she feels as if she's, you know, that, that old people, older people are sort of paling into invisibility as if they're being rubbed out. Like fading. Yeah, fading. Totally. When in reality, their stories are, are so amazing. They're like the lifeblood of our country. And yet we cease to see them as valid because we see wrinkles and grey hair. Oh, you're not interesting anymore. You're, you're no longer relevant. And yet we bang on about their experiences as if we can claim them for our own yeah. and use yeah. them to further causes. Yeah, well, well let's talk about that. Well, because I think, to say on that. I think that's kind of part of the problem is yes. that Brexit has caused this old, young divide. My mum is 72, but an ardent Remainer. And she doesn't yeah. like the idea that, you know, people assume that because you're old that you vote for Brexit and stuff. That's a culture we have now. That yeah. is not helping, is it? No, and it's so interesting you say that because yesterday I was looking on a thread of a social media Facebook site. I won't name it, but somebody put pictures of women during the Blitz and it unleashed this deluge of back in the day, this world was when women were great. Brexit, Brexit, Brexit. And actually a lot of those women who fought through all that and who were bombed out of their homes after the war were incredibly relieved at peace they wanted peace at any cost and when Europe was united that's what they were fighting for to unite Europe not to segregate it so I think it's really horrible that you've got this whole raft of people who are picking up the war Mm, and attributing it now to Brexit as if we can link the war somehow to how great Brexit is yeah not true and we were just saying this this kind of yes people did just get on with it but what is the alternative to just getting on with it? That what Getting on with it means you just got up every day yeah. and continued to be alive. Yeah. It's such a dangerous cliche as well, isn't it? You know, we made it through. It's just... Well, because not everyone did make no, it through. No, right, <laughs> yeah. exactly. And quite, on those people quite, that did make it through... It's been recorded in history books and everything. <laughs> yeah. Also, yeah. I was on a bus, like, in the bit of London that I live in, I was on a bus, like, a couple of days after the referendum result, and it's like woman was sat down this old boy got on and he sat down next to her in front of me and she's like oh what do you what do you think about this referendum thing then and I thought oh here we go and they started chatting and he was like well the thing is you know I don't want to see my grandchildren going to war was what he said and I was like that's something we don't even really think about like I I mean obviously people have pointed it out it's the longest period of peace in mainland Mm -hmm. Europe whatever for however long forever basically 
But we, I don't even think about that that much. And no. I thought that was really interesting. All we've ever known is peace. Whereas mm. these, that generation have come from, you know, memories of the First World War, the Depression, then into the Second World War. And they still have vivid memories of sort of 80 years ago, British Union of Fascists marching through the streets with slogans like Britain first. Oh. Well, where are we hearing that again now? Mm. So it's 70 years or 80 years on. It's like we're coming full circle, isn't mm. it? It's dangerous when you look at the the sort of propaganda messages that were issued by Oswald Mosley and, and the BUF then, and that exact slogan is being reused now. Mm-hmm. Terrifying. History repeats itself and we never fucking learn. No. no probably because we're not listening to our old ladies. It's weird, but. isn't it, right? It's like we should talk to people who have actually been there and done that instead of just finding the lovely black and white picture and putting our own sentiments on it. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly what people are doing. When I was a reporter, a photographer gave me a piece of advice about vox popping and he said to me, <laughs> he said to me, don't bother talking to men. And he goes, you want to talk to women? Old women or women with buggies? And I was like, right, why? He says, because no one's asked their opinion for fucking ages. So you'll get their opinion. <laughs> and I was like, and to be honest, it works an absolute Do you know what? You're trick. right. I used to do box spots all the time. Like I'd tramp around shopping centres. Yeah, you would always target the old lady with the headscarf. Yeah. Because the lady with the headscarf knows. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> can we just can we just pause a second and discuss what's happened to the headscarf? Mm. My grandma had three. She had two dry weather ones and a plastic rain hat. <laughs> one for every day, one for best, and then a plastic rain hat. And she never went out without <laughs> one of them on. Well, actually, I can tell you that the uh, look has been, um, before his incarceration, uh, ASAP Rocky had been bringing the look back into the public. I don't know who that public. is, no, I don't think it was side under the chin, though. No, was it was. It, really? it actually was, yeah. Did he have a shopping it, trolley? Did he make no, his, did he make his grandchildren the, fetch his false teeth from a mug like in the this, bathroom? It's <laughs> like this Gucci <laughs> handkerchief or something, literally tied up under his chin. It looks, it's a very strong, wow. bold, very interesting bold look. look. Well, that's because you. Used to, we were having this, literally having this chat on Friday. It's because you used to have your hair done, and mm. then you had, it had to stay yeah. done, even if it staying done involved just covering it up. And when you say done, you mean like set, set, so it's like yeah. rock hard. And like. she took that scarf off, and it still looked like she was wearing a hat. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, hel- a hair helmet. It's a hair helmet. <laughs> we used to know um, this old lady that had hair that was like a helmet, and we were, we were once on some camping trip where everybody went camping together. We were in Hastings and it got hit by like this terrible wind and everyone's tent starts blowing <laughs> off. And my tent, actually, I stepped out of it and it just blew away. <laughs> and bringing uh, childhood memories for me. Yeah, and I can remember now just looking and thinking, how is her hair exactly <laughs> the same? How is it exactly the same in this? Tents are blowing away. Did everyone shelter under moved. it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's probably still got an army of people. Yeah. So let's talk about your novel. Well, it's fiction, but it's the first first fiction that I've written off the back of Stepney Doorstep Society said that the, the previous book was non-fiction it was all the the lives and stories really rich amazing stories of East End matriarchs you know the chief females who mm-hmm. ruled ruled the streets so this is the first I've gone back to fiction but it's really weird because once you've written non-fiction you can't ever write fiction again the same way because all I hear are these women's voices in my head and so I hope... That's because they've followed you down the road. And they're literally... They are following me down the road. They're watching me. <laughs> <laughs> but they, but you, we say that, but now I'm even starting to talk like them. I said to my friend the other day, I went, she said goodbye, and I went, ta-da, be lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Who says goodbye like that? <laughs> like, and it's worth uh, pointing out for the podcast listeners that Kate is wearing three headscarves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's set at Yardley's. 
um, in Stinky Stratford, as it was known back then. And it's about the women who were working on the lipstick belts, as they called it, during the Second World War. And I think for most people, Yardley's is synonymous with sort of lavender-scented products mm-hmm. that your nan sort of used. Old ladies. Old ladies, yeah. But during the Second World War, it was requisitioned by the government as part of their Beauty is Your Duty campaign. What? So, yes, yes, I know. Who knew such a thing could happen? So instead of producing lavender-scented water and, you know, brillatines and creams sales of lipstick absolutely soared. So they were churning out red lipstick, like bullets on the lipstick line, because red lipstick was like the wartime thing. It was the most potent emblem of all of that Beauty is Your Duty campaign. So I just love the idea of all these girls, you know, age 14, bombs dropping all around them, in Stinky Stratford. It's a great place to set a book. There's a lot of kind of strong matriarchs in the book. So Nell Gunn is like the chief female and she she definitely has a headscarf. <laughs> you don't mess with her. I can't give too much away without giving away the plot Fair of the enough. book. But there are various themes in the book. Abortion is one. It's about the role of wartime abortionists. There's obviously the Blitz when it breaks out. But it culminates in quite a little-known bombing that happened in Canning Town where a bomb dropped a school with 600 people sheltering in it. There were basically mainly women and children, older people, a lot of society's most vulnerable have been herded into this school in Canning Town and they repeatedly kept saying, well, we're sending coaches, we're coming to get you out, the bombs were dropping. They're really only supposed to have been there about four hours but for some reason the coaches that were supposed to come and get them went to Camden Town instead of Canning Town. So on the third night, a bomb, the inevitable bomb dropped, killed up to 600 women and children. This is, yeah, I mean... West Ham Council's official death toll was 73, but I spoke to a man called Stan who went there the day after the disaster and he said, I saw more bodies lying around on the bomb site than 73. So locals believe it could be up to sort of 600 people killed that night, but Jesus, nobody knows wow. about it because at the time it was all hushed up, swept under the carpet by Churchill's government because it was bad for morale. So God forbid that you know morale should be seen to be cracking. So when I heard about that, I thought that's one of those little known things that I doubt very many people outside of the East End know about that. So it felt really important to put it into the book and imagine my my fictional characters involved in that. So I can't think of a bigger hell than sitting in that school hall. You know, a lot of people still there in their 90s where they were bombed out of their homes, bleeding, lacerated feet, trying to feed newborn babies, older people, you know, just hell, hell on earth. And they were left. They were just left to die because, as one man said to me back then, he said, you know, Kate, the working classes were cannon fodder. They didn't care about us. That's why we were left there. So it was a really, you know, difficult, tragic, horrible situation, but it felt important to kind of include that within the book. So you wouldn't get that looking at the, the cover, whereas it looks quite cheerful, but, but I do try to address darker themes within the book. I think it's almost impossible not to when you talk exactly. women's social history in that period. Exactly. Life was tough back then. You know, women lived in poverty Women had no autonomy, they had no choices, no freedom, you know, put to work by the government wherever they were, you know, they were directed to. And I include in that as well a woman who got pregnant out of wedlock and the shame and the horror that she must have gone through because it was such a stigma. I hope people will read it and think, God, bloody hell, I didn't know that about women's lives. I didn't know there were women acting as abortionists within communities. And that, to me, was the most interesting thing, actually. I interviewed this woman called Trish, who told me that her her mum was a childminder by day and abortionist by night. And I was like, wow. Oh, wow. Because in my head, abortionists are sort of shadowy, slightly evil women with names like Hatpin Bella that live down back alleys. <laughs> but, then, but she said, actually, 
reality is that most abortionists, certainly in that time frame before the sort of foundation of the welfare state, most abortionists were just well-known women but with a hidden existence. So they were childminders or ex-nurses or women who were really well-known and respected within the community. And I just found that fascinating, really, that a woman could play that, that many plethora of roles within her community and that being one of them. And it was so commonplace and well-known... But that image of them as a shadowy criminal figure yeah. suited a narrative that continues even today. Yeah, you know, with right. abortion falls under criminal law, not yeah. healthcare, when it should absolutely be under yeah. healthcare. And that's why anti-choices can absolutely play on those images. Like we've seen in Ireland, like we've seen yeah. in Northern Ireland, like we're going to probably see a little bit more in this government mm-hmm. as well. Because mm-hmm. yeah. it, it lingers. Yeah. yeah, like these sort of opportunistic women, like make or people making money out of your misfortune or whatever when in fact like it's a service that you've sought out because it's not fucking available and the reason why it ends badly is because you don't have the shit you need to make it safe so yeah of course and so I actually sent because when this woman had told me this I thought is this right and I sent that chapter to a lady called Dillis Cossey who is really well known respected she's the secretary of the abortion law reform association she was one of the original pioneers in the team that pushed to get the abortion law change and she read it and she went absolutely this hits the nail on the head of the typical abortionist kind of woman that I used to see who was motivated by a sense of female solidarity never by money always by solidarity saw life for what it was not how she wanted it but it's a bit like the lipstick isn't it it's like you literally paint a brave face and Mm. get on with it Mm. these were just very practical women this child cannot come into this world you do something practical and you just get on with it and a lot of women she told me that they didn't want to go into what they call double digits they didn't want to have more than 10 kids because having a 10th or 11th child would be unbearable. You couldn't possibly have hoped to have fed that many children. So when, when that... I mean, said three it, sounds that, like quite a lot to me. Yeah, yeah three sounds yeah. a lot. But can you imagine, yeah. as she said, oh, no one wanted to go into double digits. Yeah. I thought, Christ. Like. Now, you are talking to some women linked in with this book this week. Am I yes, right? Yes, on at, Thursday, at, yeah. Near Jen. Yes, I am. Near, uh, or Canning Town Library, as okay. I call it. Yeah, yeah. so Eileen and Anne are coming on, along with an amazing lady called Mary and a man called Stan, who's promised to play the spoons. He's a spoon player. <laughs> That's <laughs> Who the best such thing a... I've ever heard. <laughs> so you've got to come and hear them. So Down no, in Canning Town. Down in Canning Town, playing the spoons. Playing the spoons. Uh, it's called Stan. Of course, course he is. Of course, of course he is. is. And there's a pearly queen coming, so you've got Fucking to come. Hell. Amazing. You've got to come. So, yeah, I'm interviewing them about... Because these are the women, men and women that I interviewed as research for the book, so we're just sort of replicating it in a panel. So I'm interviewing them and they're sharing their stories. But hopefully it'll be a good turnout. How do people find out about tickets if they want to come? What's the best way? It's on Eventbrite. If you go to Canning Town or Newham Library's website, you put Kate Thompson, uh, Secrets of the Homefront Girls book launch... Or just turn up. But it would be great to see as many people as possible, really. And the book is out? Now. Now. All now. good bookshops. Uh, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> so, no, it's more, I'm more of a supermarket. So, so I, it's in Asda, Morrison's, Sainsbury's. Uh, you can order it from Waterstones, local libraries. Got to use those more. It's Perfect. And is it going to be part of a series? It is. I've got. I'm writing the. Well, I'm not writing the follow up at the moment. Actually, I should be. I'm supposed to be writing. I'm supposed to be writing the follow up. I'm procrastinating about the follow up right now. (laughs) No, that's got to be in in December, and it's coming out next August. So that's the sequel to this book is coming out. Thank you so much for coming in, Kate. This is always really interesting. I could sit here all day. I'd love to sit here all day and chat to you girls. Thank you for having me on. Oh, you're very welcome. Hello, Hannah here to tell you about our next interview. Earlier this year, America was gripped by the trial of Anna Sorokin, 
the Russian-born fraudster who became known in the media as the fake heiress of New York. She was convicted of grand larceny, theft of services and larceny in second degree and is currently incarcerated. One of the victims of her fraud, Rachel Deloche-Williams, has written a book about her experiences of being taken in by a con woman. It's called My Friend Anna. It's very good. And I went down to meet Rachel on one of the hottest, muggiest days of the year. I can half pick my days for the interviews. We spent some time in a podcast recording area, previously known as Cupboards. So I can only apologise for what I look like in that photograph. But in the meanwhile, here's what Rachel had to say about her story. This is a story about how I became friends with somebody named Anna Delvey, who was lovely and generous and I enjoyed spending time with her and then we took a trip to Morocco after which she owed me $62,000 when I got stuck with every bill, all the bills. And then it was the story of how I figured out her true identity was in fact Anna Sorokin and that she was not at all what I believed her to be and then I helped an investigation and just the reckoning, the reckoning of this friendship that was made and broken. It's a really good book. I finished it last night and there were bits of it that actually made me itchy Yeah, because money does that to me. I know, me too. I was just like... It made me feel lucky that yeah. I don't have a high limit on my credit card because I, was, I don't know how I would get up every day knowing that there was right. $60,000 worth of charges on my credit card. You I never know what you're capable them. of until you have to do it. Yeah, yeah. you were very lucky because you had people supporting you. But also it's interesting because there was a part of you that didn't want to tell people. Right. Obviously because your job, you're working at right. mm-hmm. your dad who was running for Congress, Congress yes. at the time. But also, I assume part of that because a little bit of it is, I don't know, is it embarrassment? I've really had to look at myself because a lot of people have asked me that question and that's not uh, actually an an emotion I felt coming out of this. And I I was like, am I pretending to not be embarrassed? Am I embarrassed? Should I be embarrassed? But the truth is, I I think because I had such great support systems around me and everybody knew me well enough not to question my judgment, I was able not to really feel so embarrassed and more just to... I I think I didn't tell people because it was taking so much energy to find a way to move forward every day and to just be okay and to function in my life. Not that I was functioning well, but just to get through it. So once you told somebody, they need to know, like, has it been fixed? What are you doing now? What are you going to do next? If I told my parents, I would be on the phone with my parents all day long. Yeah. So I I just didn't have the energy. Yeah, parents are like that. Parents sometimes come up with solutions and you're like, that's not why I rang you. Even if I say I have it under control. I mean, come on. If if it were my daughter, I would would be on on the next yeah. plane I would sell like half of our house I you know yeah. I'm so lucky to have such amazing parents but yeah I wanted to spare them that it's interesting isn't it because as women we are raised to be on our guard mm-hmm. but predominantly towards men right con artists exist but you don't always expect them and actually actually someone who looked like you physically you know so unnerving but <laughs> but yeah unfortunately true <laughs> do you think that your guard was down because this was a friendship rather than a romance um, yes, on all fronts. Also, you know, I, I never expected to meet any con artist, woman or man, or someone my own age. And I think part of what you've just said is why maybe the public and, and the media find her interesting now is because she is an unexpected person to be a con artist. But my guard was certainly down, and she was very good at what she did. You know, the fact that she could take advantage of banks and, and hedge funds, these major institutions that have background checks in place to prevent this very thing. They're on the lookout for fraud, and this fraudster fooled them. Of course she could fool me. I was her friend, you know. There was a baseline of trust there in our friendship to begin with. At the end of the book, you say people have asked you Mm -hmm. if 
And I have to say, until I read that, I considered coming in and asking you whether you <laughs> looked at people differently and you had a problem yeah. of trusting. But you're actually saying that, that you actually learned to trust your own judgment. More. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's true. I, you know, I view relationships differently, but I do think the biggest takeaway is uh, an increased self-awareness. And, and I now know of myself as a trusting person who wants to see the best in others, but I have to pay attention pay attention to when I'm doing that and, and make sure that I'm not doing it re- repeatedly with the same person, making up excuses for them or rationalizing their behavior. I think that is the biggest red flag. And so the takeaway is to trust your instincts. And when you see that yeah. happening again and again, step back. Because yeah. friendships are actually a lot like, well, they are relationships, but they are a lot like romantic relationships, as in you tend to have a big rush of mm. like, oh, this is new, this is exciting at the start. Right. And you do see red flags that you go, oh, no, that's fine. Yeah, fine. yeah. Like, I can forgive that. That's just her. I'm just getting to know her. Or she wasn't thinking. Or I think it's normal in in a lot of friend groups to have that one person who's kind of pushing at the edge of what you guys think is acceptable. But you make excuses for them because, you know, it's one of your friends. She's just part of the group. Yeah. You continue to believe for a long time, I think. And now it's easy for me to say with hindsight as a reader. I say that too. Yeah. It's true. Do you think that's because you needed to believe or you wanted to believe that that this was going to be okay and yeah. there couldn't possibly be this thing. I think both. I, I, I am very lucky. I think I had, I had this idealized view towards friendship and relationships in general because I was fortunate in my, you know, my childhood and like I love my parent. Like I had such positive relationships in my life that this is just how I viewed my commitment to friendship and and I believed for a painfully long time because I, I also had I hadn't learned that you know. One, I hadn't ever met a sociopath. I didn't realize that there could, there, someone could lack that that human chip that allows them to feel something profoundly for another person. That was a hard a hard lesson to learn that yeah. that that was possible. You say that in this that you are a very private person. I get that. <laughs> I'm like that. People yeah. think when you talk about certain things that that means that you're like an open person and you're like, yeah, I'm talking about that one thing. <laughs> like the rest of the stuff, I'm not. So was this hard to write? It was extremely hard to write. Um, I think exposing myself in this way, especially with a story that feels strangely controversial, it's never something I imagined myself doing. I am very much a behind-the-scenes person. I liked my job, you know, working behind the scenes on photo shoots. This was... It really cracked me open as a person. I think I am an introvert who has learned to be extroverted and to share a lot more. But I think in doing that, I have actually strengthened a lot of my positive relationships by learning how to open up to people and accept help when you need it. Yeah. God, I'm not very good at that either. It's hard. Yeah. I suppose I did read this and you you can't help but think, could that that happen to me? Which is kind of, I suppose, sort of the point of it. It's a a warning, isn't it? It's a, Mm -hmm. you know, I am an ordinary person. Sure. Because you mean you're not you're not sitting on a huge amount of money. It wasn't she was going no. through your bank account. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> so, but are you kind of a bit like people who think they're immune to advertising or stuff like that? Yeah, you're like, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm like I'm a good that, judge but, of character. Yeah. This won't happen to me. That was me. Yeah. yeah but you know, just it's not it's not who you expect it to be. You had quite a tough time at the trial, didn't you? It was, uh, made me quite angry for you. Thank you. Yeah. It was it was horrible. It was I mean, devastating. Victim blaming exists everywhere and there was to us there was, there was quite a lot of that, wasn't there? There was. I think Anna's her lawyer's approach toward me was a, a character assassination. So he was doing his job but he did it very well. And it was very hard to sit up there on a stand and to to defend myself without sounding defensive to a room full of strangers who don't know me. And I think there's so many elements to the story that are so flashy. It's easy to get distracted by those things and sort of to miss the 
the inherent deception and criminal behavior. Yeah. It's interesting because, I mean, you could go to... I mean, like, look at Kavanaugh and the... the I know. Yeah. that's I, That actually is what I felt like. This is terrible. I don't want to compare myself to him for many reasons. But, you know, there's that moment where he's being accused of drinking a lot of beer. And he's like, well, do you like beer? Yeah. But I was being accused of using this this trial yeah. for entertainment. Meanwhile, the Anna's lawyer, I think, has gotten paid from Netflix money. You know, well, Anna got $30,000 from Netflix. So I wanted to be like, no, you are. But, of course, that's not something yeah. I'm going to do on the stand. I was yeah. trying very hard to just be, you know... I just got out there to tell the, tell the truth as calmly as possible, yeah. but of course I cried a lot. Do you think that might have been different if you'd been a man? Yeah, I think when women show emotion, they are often classified as unstable or dramatic. And, you know, really, I was just up there feeling so much pressure to to, to convey this yeah. painful story. It's not something you do on purpose, although Anna's lawyer said I deserved an Oscar. So, yeah, it, it was that was actually one of the harder experiences woven into this entire ordeal. Now, you've mentioned Netflix. From a point of view of someone reading this in the UK, because of the way our legal system works, because we don't have cameras in court, it's rare that trials tend to capture the public imagination yeah. over here quite as much as they do in America. I mean, I'm just thinking as an example, like the OJ trial, where yeah. people are walking around with things on their T-shirts. Now, mm. that happened to yeah. you in <laughs> Sounds minutes. familiar. That, that's quite a battle you've had with the idea that... Yeah. Anna is a, a kind of, a, I don't know what you want to call it, like a working class hero. Or, yeah, or a... it's so twisted. Yeah, I come away with that depressing, um, that maybe I just wasn't made for these times feeling. But it's, <laughs> it, it was very surreal. I didn't anticipate that reaction to her as a character, but it, in hindsight, makes a lot of sense because that's part of the way that I think she conned me. It's like you just sort of find yourself watching her and marveling at her audacity. Yeah. And, and the fact that she was styled for court, she was putting mm. on a show. This is exactly what they intended to have happen. And I think it did really blend our legal system with entertainment in a way that was unnerving to me personally. And then to see it play out in, you know, these like Instagram accounts following her court looks and, and just this this fascination with her as this yeah, shiny, funny person taking advantage of these systems, which she wasn't trying to undermine. She desperately wanted to be a part of them. It was yeah, all that is so backwards. Yeah. yeah. So yesterday, I, it occurred to me when I was reading this, I didn't know what she looked like. Mm-hmm. So I Googled her. And I ran into the story about Netflix. Mm-hmm. And they're finding themselves right up against the son of Sam Law, which if people listening don't know what that is, that was uh, something that was brought into designed to stop David Berkovich right. profiting from his crime. Right, yeah. She is, I don't know what you can say legally about this, but oh, they I are quite close up against that now. Mind you, I know as much as you do from reading the news, I'm working with HBO and thrilled to be doing that, but I'm very separate from the whole Netflix uh, well, aside from my obvious involvement in the story itself, but I'm very separate from Netflix and their deal making and such. But I, I read that Anna was supposed to get a thousand, $100,000, I guess, for the the rights to her, I don't know, story, her life story. Um, and I think she got $30,000 of that money before the trial. And I think it went, I, I read that it went directly to her lawyer. And that's how his his paid. defense was, yeah, at least partially financed. And, and I think that the, I mean, the, the district attorney's office in New York has stepped in to prohibit her from getting the remaining 70000 and that's where it came out of the news recently. But it's it's alarming to me to think someone can commit a crime and then seek its entertainment value to finance one's criminal defense. I don't know that that's yeah. a great precedent to personally. That's no tricky. It's also really soon 
afterwards, isn't it? For yeah. It to, to... I know. When I when I started writing the book, it never occurred to me that the trial or any of the fallout after the, the whole betrayal, it had never occurred to me as part of the story, but I kind of feel like we caught up to the tale. Like, but yeah, it's a very succinct amount of time that this has all played out and then exploded in the media. So have you had any contact with Anna since? The last time I saw her was in court and I haven't had any contact with her. You feel like you're done with this? Yeah. Yeah. Very, very much so. I think she's a part of my past. I don't, she's had enough of my energy, enough of my attention. I'm really proud to have the book where this story can live and not, yeah. it won't be in my brain forever. It just, it, it's in the, it's in the book. Feel good about that, but I'd like to leave it behind me for sure. Yeah. Well, that's definitely the case. People always say, write stuff down. Yeah. It's good therapy. Yeah. But also, it's, it's good to get things written down because you think, oh, actually, there might be something in this mm-hmm. when was the first point that you thought oh actually there might be something in this well at first I was writing because like you said I, I couldn't stop replaying all the scenes I needed to get it out of my head to feel healthy so I was just sort of doing this exorcism extraction of all the memories on paper it was the day after I, I found the district attorney's office and realized that she was the subject of an investigation that for me was confirmation that this was a person I don't know at all. So I was replaying everything. But, you know, even living through it, each step of the way was more bizarre than the last. And so even as it was happening, it felt like my life was some nightmarish uh, movie of sorts that I didn't want to be stuck inside. Um, So I I knew it was a wild story as I was going through it. So tell me about HBO. Well, I'm thrilled that Lena Dunham is working on it for HBO, and I'm involved with that. I'm excited about it, and I look forward to having more news to announce on that uh, front. Great. Yeah. Great. Do you know if Lena? Well, I mean, I'm going to ask her. She might not be go for it. Do you, is Lena Dunham going to be in it? I don't know. I'm oh, not right. sure. Yeah, I don't believe so. But right. yeah, I don't know. Well, stay tuned. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You're actually not with Vanity Fair anymore, are you? No. So what else have you got on the horizon? Well, I was actually laid off in February of this year, which sounds sad, but really it was godsend because writing a book is hard and took a lot of time, and I pulled a lot of all-nighters. We did something called a crash close where the book was finished in a very small amount of time, so that took a lot of work. Um, And I've been doing a lot of lovely press like this and catching my breath. I'm going to just take like a month, I think, to regroup before I figure out what comes next. I'm one of those people where I have quite a Pollyanna approach. I I had a terrible <laughs> period in my life, not linked like this. Now, the way I got through that, yeah. I was thinking, I'm going to write a sitcom about this because there's something in it, there's something ther- therapeutic in it, but also something good has to come out of something right. shit. This is not where it ends for you. Yeah. you got to keep going. Do you do you feel now you're a better person for this having happened or that, that, that life has changed for you in a positive way? Can, yeah. you, can you see the positive side? Of I... I will never be glad that this happened. I I loved my life before this story. I had my dream job and I was in New York and I felt good about it. I think that resilience is a really laudable quality and I'm very proud of having taken something so negative and turned it into a positive. I certainly come out of this with a stronger sense of myself and, and I feel more assertive and, and able to speak up when I think something isn't right or to, you know, even testifying in court as hard as it was, I just there's it was very empowering, I think, coming through this. So yeah. I do feel I've I've grown a lot in the last yeah. few years and I, I I'm glad for that. But you know, I wish the, the circumstances had Did, been different. Yeah. 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 I mean obviously this is rare for this to happen. Or I don't know. I hope so. you have spoken to, to you have sort of met some other people that it's happened to. If someone is in a situation where 
they feel like there is something wrong in a relationship with a friend or, you know, with mm-hmm. a partner or something. Is, is there any advice you could give on how people can find a way forward? Yeah, I'd say pay attention to that feeling. If you have a feeling that something isn't right and you find yourself making excuses for someone repeatedly, pay attention. When people show you who they are, believe them. You know, set clear boundaries, take a step back, and maybe give that relationship some space until you can figure out how you feel and maybe who this person really is. That is some very good advice. Thank you so much, Rachel. This has been really interesting. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right, it's Janet. Sorry to interrupt your listening experience. If you like what we do here at Standard Issue and you want to keep hearing some excellent content made by excellent women, yeah, us, we know, you can do so by visiting our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash Standard Issue and chucking some dollar our way. Thanks very much. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we hit the patriarchy for six as we discuss all things women's sport. And we've a bit of catching up to do this week. Now I'm delivering this week's news in a sort of shit sandwich format because as we know, we must have the lows to fully experience the highs and it's all part of life's and indeed sports rich tapestry. So let's start with the Women's Rugby Super Series, which England finished second in, just one point behind New Zealand. I expect we'd prefer to have won that, but um, we did finish above France, Canada and the US, and New Zealand are sort of famously quite good at rugby. Then next to the Netball World Cup, and you'll remember I spoke to former England player Sarah Bayman just before the tournament, largely about the frustration of finishing third quite a lot. So... Bit of a shame that we took home another bronze medal, and by home I mean, like, next door, because we sort of already were home, the tournament was in Liverpool, but a medal's a medal, and at least we're consistent, right? New Zealand won it, and Australia came second. Shakes fist at sky! The Antipodeans heaped further misery on us, as a sports journalist would say. It is one of those things that no one says outside of sports journalism, like melee. Fracar, I have heard Kath, my mum, drop the occasional fracar, but never a melee. Anyway, it was them again as we lost the Ashes in a pretty major way, actually. Um, That was also at home, and we should have done better. But we won only three of those 12 meetings. However, the Kia Super League gets underway today. I'm recording this on Tuesday, so yesterday, if you're listening on Wednesday. So there's an opportunity to give us some happier cricketing memories. So I've realised this isn't actually really a shit sandwich so much as a tunnel of shit, but look, there is light at the end of it, and that comes in the sport of football, because of course it does. Let's get the men's stuff out of the way quickly, because we're allowed to like that as well. Who knew? The Premier League gets underway again this week, and I'm a bit like, yeah, whatever Premier League, because avid listeners will know my team, Charlton Athletic, got promoted to the Championship. What you might not know is that full of optimism shortly thereafter, I got well drunk and bought a season ticket. We won our first match, FYI, and none of you are interested in this, but stay with me. And also have a watch of a little video I made with Mundial magazine, which I've tweeted, as has the Standard Issue account, and it's very lovely, even if you don't give a shit about football. But the Premier League, who's going to win it, I hear you cry. Stop fucking around, guys. It's going to be Manchester City forever and ever and ever. Right, glad we got that sorted. Anyway... Some really lovely stories coming out of women's football at the minute, boosted by the World Cup this summer, no doubt. The Scottish FA have just announced a comprehensive review aimed at helping to develop women's football in Scotland. The Lionesses are playing Germany at Wembley on November the 9th, and 50,000 tickets have already been shifted, but we can do better than that. 
tenner for adults, one pound for kids. You know what to do, guys. And on a live matches tip, there has been a shed load of fixtures announced for the next WSL season to be played at the men's, if you will, main stadiums, which is, again, really big. And it would be so good to see those sell really well. And further news from broadcasting, according to a survey carried out by TalkSport and Mediacom, two thirds of consumers now want to see women's football broadcast more frequently across TV and the Football Association are going to do just that. Announced this very morning, literally as I was writing this, women's Super League matches are going to be streamed on a new platform dedicated to women's football, the FA Player, which will offer live access to over 150 domestic women's football fixtures and guys, I'm not even fucking around it's free to view you just have to register from september the 2nd so we are going all out here and i applaud everyone involved in doing that it's really really excellent to see and i think it is going to make a huge difference a lot of exciting times ahead i think in women's football and finally because i'm enjoying this good news vibe congratulations to germany's fiona kolbinger who has beaten 200 men to become the first ever woman to win the transcontinental race and what that means is that she cycled 2485 miles across europe in just over 10 days congratulations fiona that's all from me this week got thoughts on any of this including how sensible it was to buy a season ticket for a notoriously disappointing team while drunk Tweet me, I am on at Inspirogen, or if you like pictures of other people's pets, I'm on the old Instagram under the cunning guise of Jenoff, two N's, two F's. You're welcome. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Dystopia. Dunleavy, what vision of a future hell did we watch this week? This week we watched 2002's Equilibrium, which stars Christian Bale. Emily Watson, albeit briefly, considering she's the female lead. Tay Diggs, who may or may not follow you on Twitter. He has at one point followed me yeah, on Twitter, he yeah. Does, he does follow me, I don't know why. Which is somewhat of an eclectic cast. And also Sean Bean. And the minute I saw Sean Bean was in it, I sent you to a WhatsApp message that said, I wonder how he's going to die. And I had watched it before you, and I watched it, and as soon as he came on the screen, I went, oh, Sean, when do we say goodbye? <laughs> <laughs> and the answer is, pretty fucking quickly. <laughs> So when are we? We are in 2072, which is quite a way off. Probably too far off for me to be saying whether or not I feel like it's realistic. But what I can say is that if we are still making this podcast in 2072, we can revisit it then, maybe. Oh, great. It's good to have something to look forward to. Absolutely. So it's set in a place called Libria, which is the sort of remnants of what's left of much of the world after World War Three, which happened at some point between 2002 and 2072. So I'm automatically giving it a point for feeling like it at least judged the current climate, if not the climate of 2072. It opens with a massive gunfight between what looks like some SS monks and some rebels, and like all rebels from the future, they basically just look like the levelers, just, <laughs> just fighting, uh, and culminates in the burning of the Mona Lisa. We've all done it. Should I give a bit of plot description? It's, there's quite a lot of plot. A lot happens in this. It does, and yet it does. nothing at all. Yeah, it's very 1984. It's very 1984. It's very Fahrenheit 451. 
It's a real pick and mix of dystopian movies. It really is. But that said, it also has a theme running through it, which is the awakening of someone who is essentially a soldier who has believed that the world was one way and now discovered it's something else, which very much reminded me of the very good Black Mirror episode, Man of Fire, which I think, to be fair to Equilibrium, Man of Fire does draw itself a bit from that. Okay. I think its main crux, which is that in Libya, feeling is illegal and will have you burned or shot by a a cleric, I think, is what John Prescott, aka Christian Bale, is known as. Not Prescott. John Prescott. (laughs) Do you know what? I was so surprised when John Prescott turned up in it. (laughs) Threw an egg at someone. I was like, why didn't Hannah mention this in the intro? Pauline, it's happened again. He didn't throw an egg, did he? He had one thrown at him. Um, he does only have one toilet in this so it can't have been John Preston mm. yet and it's John Preston is the fact that feeling is illegal is what made it for me quite a tricky watch because it means that it's all very cold a bit yeah. like that one with Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman yes and it's just like okay I get that they're acting that they're cold because that's how they're supposed to be but that's really dull to watch yeah. exactly and also kind of riddled with problems because okay so what happens is everybody has to inject themselves with something called prosium which i think is a dig at prozac see what they did to then. make sure that people don't have to feel anything people taking drugs in order not to feel something is something i'm usually on board with <laughs> i'm not sure it works here because Having no emotions, which is what they're trying to suppress, doesn't logically make any sense within parts of this story. For example, they appear to have job satisfaction, which I would imagine is some way linked to pride. They seem to have ambition, which is in some way linked to pride. Um, (laughs) They get cross. They do. Uh, Also, when his wife is taken away, the lead character, Christian Bell, his wife is taken away. He looks at her with what I can only describe as blank indifference. But however, the very fact that he notices that she's gone would suggest he has some sort of emotion towards her. Yeah, I just spent the whole of me watching it just pointing out the feelings that were happening. Exactly. There's also supposed to be no art. However, there is architecture and there is interior design, both of which are creative forms of art. So... There are bits that don't really make sense. It's clearly fashion as well. They all look like being clothed by Tom Ford. Exactly. Or Hugo Boss during the 1930s. Yes. Yeah. So John Prescott, that's what he's going to be called now. He's playing a cleric. He has a son. He has a daughter. He has a wife that has been previously fridged, but ironically by fire, uh, for, by fire. For, for enjoying thinking, which is a bad thing. They live in a city. Outside the city is called the Nether, which suggests that people spend their time in the Nether regions, which I enjoy quite a lot. <laughs> and the first kind of crux of his problem that he comes up with is the death of Sean Bean. Sean Bean discovers a book of poetry by W.B. Yeats and it makes him start thinking. He quotes the cloth of heaven to Christian Bale talking about dreams and he dies for it. So actually I think of all the way that Sean Bean has died in films this is the one I'd pick if I I was going to go that way. Reading Yeats is not a bad way to go I think. Being shot through the book though that would kill your poetry enjoyment. It would. Well, kill you. But it would kill you too. It did kill him. I'd just like to go on a small detour to say that um, they, they, they've picked the cloths of heaven and I, well, I thought they might pick The Second Coming, which is probably one of Yeats's most famous poems, to represent this, um, in which says, things fall apart, the centre cannot hold, mere chaos is unleashed on the world. So just as a little stop, I'd like to give that poem 
five Arnie's and five <laughs> Arnie's for now. Okay, that's good. First full score for something we didn't watch. <laughs> so, long and short, John Prescott accidentally breaks one of his prosiums and starts to feel stuff and then makes a decision that he's going to continue to feel stuff. A lot of those stuff is happening in his pants. Thanks to Emily Watson, which might bring us perhaps to our first point of maybe talking about women. Tell us about the woman in this film, Anna. Okay. Well, well, there's two women, obviously. There's two women. Both of them are sense offenders. I have to say I misheard that at the start, and I yep. thought it was sex offenders for quite a long time. Yeah. I'm glad you did too. Emily Watson is taken in to custody for being a sense offender because she has hidden behind a wall what is essentially my nan's front room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was so weird to see that understand. picture of you as a child. <laughs> yeah. Almost immediately, he starts to feel things in his man parts for her. Largely because she's dressed a bit like an Irish urchin. You know, I kind of felt like she should have some fingerless lace gloves. She's also called Mary O'Brien. And she essentially is, with that long flowing hair, she's got a touch of the Cockney prostitute that that gets picked up, you know, by the copper. And he's like, oh, I love her, but she's going to die. You know, Jack the Ripper is going to kill her. Exactly. Exactly that. Surprise, surprise. After being like thrust onto a table by him and and him basically, by him, I mean, John Prescott, managing to show his love (laughs) through like force, force. And going near her, um, she she eventually dies. I'll tell you what, she goes to her death like Mary Queen of Scots. Oh, she's well, she blinks. I was going to say she's unblinking, but she does actually blink. But all but of that's that stuff it. with the cloak when she's walking, and I'm like, if this is like a mass, a, like this is a very elaborate way of executing people. Given if she'd actually been outside, they'd have just fired a bullet and pushed her over. But also, why is she in a waterproof jacket to get set on fire? But anyway. it is very like Mary Queen of Scots when she died. She she like put on a red dress and she was like really martyred according to reports threw her cloak off and walked really melodramatically and it you know it seemed like a a sort of nod to that a nod to that well I, I mean I don't, I don't know, know that right. it's got any original ideas so it probably was yeah um <laughs> damning I'm gonna I'm gonna so women not great um what what on the plus side I did think their stuff with the children was quite effectively done because children in this are essentially like what what children were in the Khmer Rouge, like utterly fucking terrifying grasses who've oh my been like indoctrinated yeah. by... That robot kid. Yeah. Fucking hell. Um, and I think if, if there's anything that, that we can learn from this, I mean, if the world is tumbling towards this, at the very least, can we not indoctrinate our children? Because I find it very, very spooky and it's very effective. Should it's I really report creepy. him, Daddy? Unquestionably. That's like basically the only thing I remember about watching this yeah. film. Yeah. Then the rest of the film is him, I suppose, going cold turkey on his drug but what i don't understand right is john prescott is their highest cleric yeah he is the their top. archbishop of canterbury it's the archbishop of canterbury in this and he is like got the top of his game everyone wants to learn from him he's amazing yet he is the shittest at hiding anything yeah he is terrible he's sniffing a ribbon in public he rearranges his desk which is a criminal offense he's yeah. brought down by a fucking puppy the universal yes. language of puppies. Yeah, I've actually, I've actually written in here. It was a puppy. What I did him. It's a cute dog, though. Yeah. Oh, it's very cute. Um, I mean, it has a lot of action film tropes, which I kind of love and hate at the same time, including the most epic fighting while talking oh God, or so talking funny. while fighting that goes on between him and Tay Diggs. There's a lot of ridiculousness in that. There's lots of music telling you what to feel. Everything's very melodramatic. There's a bit where he's like. 
oh, do they actually suspect it's him? Do they not? Do they? And there's really like music playing. There's about four elaborate, not so elaborate, rug pulls in exactly. a row. Um, yeah, I, it's it's not great, but it did kind of make me laugh a bit. And I don't. It's know an that. excellent screwball comedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't really explain why it made me laugh. It made me but laugh more as it went on, and I wondered if that was because, ironically, my senses were being worn away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, just I, I, I had feelings I didn't even understand for this film. I sort of lost interest after the dog, to be honest. I fell asleep eventually. It looks slick and sort of matrixy. Yes, fight that scene. fight scene where, like, inexplicably, there's one of him, there's 50 of them, and yet he wins. Yeah. Has anyone seen the Clive Owen film Shoot 'em Up? I've heard about it. It is ridiculous, but it's really funny and it's genuinely funny rather than it's worn down anything else I can think or feel. (laughs) And the fight scenes in that are just so gloriously over the top ridiculous. And yet this is doing it with a straight face and that made it even funnier. When he first arrives in the underground and someone says to him, welcome to the underground, (laughs) I was like, (laughs) And I love that the underground resistance literally live underground like Mm. Wombles. Yeah. (laughs) There's no like, there's no code for it. Hi, this is the underground. You found us. Cool. Yeah. How did you know where to look? (laughs) I mean, it's worth mentioning, uh, just in case we forget that. I mean, like I say, it's very 1984, but the role of Big Brother is played by Sean Pertwee. And that's just all I'm going to say. Who else did you spot, Jen? Oh, yeah. Totally bemused by the very brief appearance of Brian Connolly. Yeah, he was there for about two minutes. He's not in it for very long, is he? Is that when I fell asleep? I don't know. Um, yeah, just wasn't expecting that. Do you have that. a dream about Brian Connolly? <laughs> no, he's in it. He no, no, but it. I mean, when you saw him and then fell asleep. No. Did you then dream about Brian Connolly? No, but I don't usually remember my dreams. Do you not? No. You're stepping on don't my dreams. Don't tread softly <laughs> on my dream. Oh, we both, we both tried and we both, both misquoted. <laughs> the centre cannot hold, Jen. So, technology-wise, what are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking cars look exactly the same. Mm. And, in fact, they still have, specifically have a key for the boot of a car. Yes. Mm. Which I found quite interesting. You would have thought that would have been improved by well, I don't. I, I don't, don't need a key. No. <laughs> Most people don't even have that anymore, do they? No. Just click it. Yeah. But he does have um, quite interesting go-go gadget arms where he just like does that. And for the purposes of a podcast, I'm yeah. just waving my arm and like a new weapon seems to appear in his hand. Are they up his sleeves? Are they I think just so? How has he got room for that many weapons up his sleeves? Oh, don't try bringing logic into this, Jen. Have you, have you never you haven't watched Justified? Have you? No. When um, what's his face Neil? Uh, come to me. Turns up in Justified in the third series of it. He has those things that he's made himself. Yes. Run on runners down his arms so he mm. can't be picked up by they security. Cool. So maybe it's an example of that. Yeah. Maybe. Neil McDonough. Sorry. Okay. Carry on. That whole thing that we spotted before in dystopian movies, which is instead of a more technological advanced telly, they just have like loads of them. He had two faces on his watch. Did he? Yeah. Yeah. For no reason whatsoever. They both told exactly the same time. Well, why not have two? Because it looks silly. What about the mob? There isn't a mob. There isn't a mob because they're all, you know, placid. and Puppets. Yeah. It's just a puppet. I don't know. All the people he kills, they're kind of a mob, aren't they? Like they're the man. No, I, I, think, I think they're lacking a mob in this, isn't it? Uh, and so they, they basically they uh, they decide to try and kill the supply of prosium so that people can wake up and have feelings. 
How many Arnie's are we giving it? Oh, is it a good film, Arnie's? With apologies to Emma, who asked us to watch this. No, no, it's not. Emma, really. what's like, wrong with you? Maybe one. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she thought it was just funny. Because, it, yeah, it is hilarious. But not hilarious enough that it makes it a good film. No. No. Or even an enjoyable film. uh, So uh, that's a review from from Dozy Time Jen over in the corner. If Jen can't stay awake, it's only getting one. And what about, no, get us a chopper. Yeah, like I say, I mean, I kind of feel like Yates is more on it than Equilibrium's on it for where the world stands at the moment. But it's not trying to predict where the world stands at the moment. It's trying to predict where the world's going in 2072 and in many ways technologically backwards although that said there has been a bomb so you know maybe they lost everything maybe all the cars that like that had one of the beep beep things. so they had to go back to 1995 yeah. to um source sure. yeah i'm going to ask an extra question hannah jen do you think john prescott can save us pauline <laughs> <laughs> it's happened again <laughs> <laughs> what are we watching next week this made me want to watch Fahrenheit 451. I love the book. I've never seen a film based on the book. You have two options. There is a Fahrenheit 451 made in the 1980s by Truffaut that's got Julie Christie in it. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm pointing at Mickey a little bit with that hand, that option. She is pointing Because at me. I'm thinking that will be her option. Or there is a version made last year, and now my hand is pointing over to Jen, that stars Michael B. Jordan. Then I'm very much voting for that. I think I, there's a good chance I won't fall asleep if he's in How it. accurate a adaptation of Fahrenheit 451 either of them are? I don't know. Do you ever vote? <laughs> <laughs> you know where I'm voting on this. Let's let Jen have a lovely time. Okay. Yay. Fahrenheit 451 it is then. Some of it might not be safe for the podcast though. <laughs> <laughs> Standard issue for all women.